0: In this conversation, we follow some very deep thinking and consider some of the bigger issues and impacts of our behaviours with Daryl Naidu. Daryl, a chartered engineer and a fantastic systems thinker, shares how he put his thinking to the test by creating New Normal Bar and Kitchen in Subiaco, which was built on the principles of providing seasonal local WA-based food and beverages while reducing food-related waste in the process. This is a fascinating insight into the thinking of someone who has spent some quality time considering behavioural economics and impacts at a really quite deep level, both on a micro and macro level here in WA. I believe taking the time to listen and truly engage with Daryl is well worth the time investment. He puts forward that his lack of emotionality helps his thinking, but I believe there's actually a lot of emotion in there, which, like his thinking, runs deep. So enjoy, Daryl. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Putting yourself out there based on what you feel is right, sharing the learnings of things that have not gone necessarily so well in business and circular economy are just some of the things I'm sure we'll be exploring today with my guest, Daryl Nerdy. Daryl, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bryn. Nice to be here. So you were born here in Bunbury, One of the things I like to ask right from the start is um, like people's connection to land and because it is WA real. So you interestingly have an Irish mum and a Malay Indian father born in Bunbury. Tell me what was life like growing up here in Western Australia?
1: It's hard to know an alternative life. But (laughs) uh, we certainly felt and still feel very fortunate to have been West Australian born. And the life that we had, being raised in Bunbury, and you know, then uh, also being born in Bunbury and then being raised up here in Perth, was extremely fortunate. We didn't really want for anything. Uh, our lifestyle, you know, really engaged us with the outdoors from a very early age. And was one of the most consistent things I hear from people who grew up in Western no Australia. Doubt, <laughs> no doubt, and um, the place really shapes you as well. In what way? Um, I guess, for example, uh, when I've uh, when I've spent extensive time uh, or periods of time away from Western Australia, the one thing I really miss is the coast. Yeah. Um, a year away on an exchange program, landlocked in the Midwest in in uh, Indiana, U.S the first thing I wanted to do the moment I put pens down for the last exam was find a beach yeah and I don't know if that's typical of everyone everywhere it's certainly for us here we've become so accustomed to the coastline to some extent the space uh, the quality and diversity of nature as well Mm -hmm. and yeah I think that's really what I consider the most important parts of of being West Australian mm. So would you say you're a proud Western Australian? Absolutely, yeah absolutely we're so fortunate to be from this region, I'm sure we'll talk about exactly why in time but the rest of the world doesn't live or doesn't have the same amount of opportunity that we have here it's mm. different but it's not, the, It's. It, I'm not going to say it's better here but my goodness I certainly appreciate everything that we've got the diversity of landscape, uh, the, the biodiversity that we have, the weather. Yes. You know, we're in shorts right now, Bryn. And, yeah. uh, it's wonderful. We've just, we've just knocked winter on the head and, and yeah, life is just very straightforward. It is. Mm. It is. I like the way you can,
0: coming from England where things, million, 65-70 million people on a very small island, things are moving so quick and they come at all angles there's a certain, you can see things coming across the horizon here not just physically but Mm. also in the way trends and things move, I find and if you have, and if I still keep my eye out beyond Western Australia and look at trends in the UK and connected there and the US you can see where we're going but you can see how they come across and then that also manifests itself in simple things like you know i used to catch the train to the city to work and i go past the fremantle port and you see all the cars that are coming in you see all the goods and services and they're all laid out there on the tarmac before they go off to wherever they're going you see stuff arriving
1: uh, i guess that's that's true mm-hmm. uh you do appreciate the isolation as well uh it's one, probably one of the great advantages I see of, of being here is that we're very separate from a lot of uh, unease around the world. And mm. uh, Although we rarely receive visitors, uh, West Australia's uh, seen to be a little bit too far for most people that mm. are outside of the country. Um, we kinda might, makes, we might catch on to trends them. a little bit after the rest yeah. of the world. Um, though we also... Yeah, do have to fend for ourselves in a way. And it's, Mm. in a way, nice. It is. Yeah. I like being uh,
0: further down the rungs of survival, as I call it. You know, we didn't... Living in the middle of England, we didn't... We were quite... Everything was comfortable. There was always food supply. There was rarely ever major weather events and stuff like that. Here in Western Australia, particularly in Perth, you know, we're further... We can have big wins and certain things will happen. And then you leave Perth and you go up past Gerald, turn it up to Carnarvon and you're even further down the, the mm. rungs on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, mm. close to food survival, That's right. shelter.
1: It becomes a lot more elementary, doesn't it? Mm. Absolutely.
0: So you're a chartered engineer. You worked in upstream oil and gas, but you also started a very principled restaurant that will focus on a bit more reducing waste. There's a strong sense as I look across... Um, your story. There's a strong sense of really having a go at tackling some of the bigger issues and bigger challenges that we all face. Where does that come from in Daryl's
1: journey? Uh, I guess the interest in big issues. I cannot even tell you where that's originated. Uh, I certainly know I've come to realise that that is an area that I really enjoy focusing on yeah and really it's big problems that others feel are too big Mm. and I like um, I'm very pragmatic I think as a as an individual sorry an individual start the unemotional as well and I feel like it I just have this aptitude at seeing systems in a different way to others Um, I can connect the dots a little bit easier Hmm. often feel like i'm saying things and the audience can be a few steps behind Uh, for me the challenge has been how do i become a better communicator in this area because certainly when i started out i wasn't really able to just slow down articulate exactly what i needed to say and even then the words sometimes just don't come as as well for me as they do for others but uh, the process is is a focus, yeah. When did the penny first
0: drop that? Because there's an inherent bias, you know, as we leave childhood and go into the world that everybody thinks like we do. And then after a while, you start to realize, hmm, the way I think about things is just slightly different. I mean, inherently, it's always going to be different. Mm. But if you if you're looking at things in a system orientation and you can see bigger picture and patterns and things like that, which, when did the penny really drop that, oh, this is, I don't know how I've got here, but I've ended up with a unique perspective.
1: Yeah, uh, I I guess there's probably been so many penny drop moments Mm. in my, in my time. I can remember being quite a diligent worker from a very young age but a little bit more passive. I just did things because, you know, that was what you did and I, I, I didn't yep. really rock the boat necessarily. I left university, float. I mean, left high school, floated into university and was just fortunate to have really landed in an area that I would consider home to my calling, you know, in a way. I'm, I'm very confident that I am where I want to be now in terms of the skill set, uh, the focus mm-hmm. as well. Um, certainly leaving Western Australia uh, was, and when I say leaving Western Australia, going to live as a young adult, somewhere where my parents weren't following me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, we were very fortunate as we were growing up to really see a lot of the world. Um, again, being first generation Australian, my parents really prioritized Um, us knowing family and Mm. origins and and really just seeing the world. And I think that has really kind of set us on the right path to to maintaining an open mind, to really being comfortable with some of the challenges that life throws at you as well. Mm. Uh, But then moving forward to this time away, uh, I, I went while I was at university and I probably wasn't the most uh, diligent student at university for a period. Yeah. I went away on an exchange to a university called Purdue, and it's in the middle of Indiana, very close to the Illinois border, a town called West Lafayette. It's about two hours south of Chicago, and it's about as different to where I was from as I could imagine within the United States. Right. Very friendly people. Uh, I did so much learning there without actually even really knowing it. Hmm. Uh, you know, here I was thinking that I was, you know, having a year-long holiday, and you know, I didn't abstain from any of the parties or you know, the, the anything that, yeah. that came with being away, you know, on college campus in in the United States. But I went there with quite a distinct purpose, and I really, I felt like while I was here uh learning you know i studied chemical engineering and chemistry so it probably gives you an insight into the i guess the things that interest me as well but all that we were learning about was you know resource extraction you know it was it was certainly the mo of western australia at the time and Mm. you could see universities as a precursor um, were preparing us for that and i really was a little bit more curious so At the time Purdue University was one of the leading engineering schools over in the United States and I was quite interested in alternative fuels knowing that you know from a renewable energy perspective Mm. um, my role as a chemical engineer was probably not necessarily going to extend into the world of wind, solar, hydropower and you know the real mainstays. So hydrogen, biofuels, they became a real interest. And at the time, uh, one of the leading researchers in that field academically was uh, Professor Arvind Farmer, who has sadly passed away early this year. Um, I kind of just thought I'd suck it and see and and see if he'd take me on as a a research, um, or if I could do my research thesis under his guidance. And... And... Yeah, that led to, I guess, that decision to move away led to several different, um, I guess, moments of realisation. Firstly, I saw there was far more to the world than what we were looking at here in in resource extraction.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I also really became very fascinated with the energy industry just in the whole, you know, what we manufactured with, you know, the way our economy is structured nowadays is you know almost uh, a modern new basic human need in, in energy yes and uh, you know I'm, I'm sure there's differences of opinion on that point but i just i challenge you know anyone to live with the lights on for mm. you know an extended period of time let alone charging up your iphone yeah that's <laughs> right that's right and Uh, you know, reading books like The Quest and The Prize by Daniel Juergen, they were very influential. Um, I, and this pragmatism, you know, I really just wanted to, regardless of where I applied myself, have as meaningful an impact as possible. Mm. Um, Was that quite clear to you earlier on? um, No, no, I think think gradually it built. And I'd Mm. say the culmination of, the understanding that yes this is where i want to go and this is what i want to do that came that came over there and, yeah. and you know quite an influential lecturer that i had uh, professor uh, zinsberg who was uh, leading us through a course that i really signed up for in a whim uh, i had some extra cap space in my schedule loading and i just thought No, why not just just add it in there it was called fossil fuels and society and i thought it was going to be a complete rinse i I really didn't know what to expect but it actually was probably one of the most the most influential uh periods of learning that Mm. i can really draw back on and um you know speaking to to professor zinsberg um uh, towards the end of the course, as as we were wrapping up, and I was asking him, you know, what would you do? You know, if you were a young engineer, or he was a geologist, uh, about to enter the the industry, and he was like, just focus on getting inside. You know, if you want to if you want to make a difference anywhere, mm. you know, you're best off in the cockpit. Mm. It's really hard to be doing it from you know from outside a vehicle that's moving at whatever pace. And yes. yeah, so I really took that on, and I just said, all right, this is what I'll do. And at the time, you know, the focus on alternative fuels and so on, you know, very firmly believed that that was going to happen, uh, that was going to be led or the commercialization of those types Mm. of technologies were going to be led from within, you know, uh, integrated oil companies. Mm. Um, And that, you know, is probably proving to be true. But, you know, certainly the timeline was was definitely not as as fast as I would have liked. And but, you know, I understood, you know, you have, you know, as a public listed company, you know, you are doing things for your shareholders. Yes. And it's quite transparent. Yeah. And so, you know, why? Why pursue anything purely in the interest of science? when you know you just need to maintain profitability your commercial venture. certainly you know the are there are the advantages of being able to organize resources and 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 really um i guess create that cost benefit analysis uh or create that cost benefit by you know pursuing some of these things but it needs to be done at the right time hmm. and yeah and so that led me to to chevron and then um other aha moments the I guess the point at which I decided impassioned enough to go out and do something myself. uh, I never really looked at business as something I needed to do. Mm. Uh, Though I really, I read a really interesting book and Mm. it was uh, published by the UWA Press uh, by a guy by the name of Richard Weller. Professor Richard Weller, I should um, offer him that uh, courtesy. It's called Boomtown 2050. Yeah. And I would have picked up this book as a bit of coffee table reading and maybe not much more. Yeah. Um, Back in 2009, 10, somewhere around that time. I can't remember exactly when I bought it. Uh, Really, the book is a study into futures for Perth and I guess largely, um, I guess the metropolitan region. Mm in in uh, the southwest and really shone a light on a lot of the inefficiencies that we treat as normal here in western australia we do well i don't even know if it's tolerating Mm. um you know to tolerate them means that you have to realize that there's something wrong yes and for many of us you know this is just life and life, uh, you know, you touch on concepts such as the the resource curse and paradox of plenty. We have everything mm. here. Yes, we've got sun, we've got wind, we've got space, we've got biodiversity coming out our ears. Yes,
0: yes. One of the top five sites in the world. Yeah, down that's down right. Somewhere.
1: And we are just not able to and because of these things I Mm. feel like there are many impediments to us actually becoming very resource efficient Mm. because we don't have to think about efficiency Mm. and That was a problem that I wanted to address I also felt and so this is someone, you know, Mm. we said I'm a pragmatic green mind going into work for big oil yeah, and big you know, oil. understanding you know, understanding all of the history behind it, you know, the way big oil really cemented itself, you know, in I guess the into the fabric of our lives, mm-hmm. uh, the you know what it's enabled, uh, yes. what it's meant, and the repercussions, how it's put itself into the economy, yeah, you know, shifting from gold to oil. That's right, <laughs> that's right, and I just one thing um, I have to say about working in big oil is it has to be home to some of the most intelligent ecologically conscious minds i've ever come across yes, and this is very counterintuitive to what anyone from the outside would say in mm. observation. Um, they see all these things, they see us drilling in the Bight, or you know companies drilling in the great Australian bite and I understand, Barrow you know, Barrow Island, you know, Class A nature reserves and things yeah. like that. But personally, I didn't. I haven't really met people. There, are, there are a, a very firm uh, handful of, of real leaders here in Western Australia that, you know, really embody ecological efficiency. Yeah. Um, you know, taking those out of the equation, you know, we had people riding to work, people living very low cost lifestyles from an ecological perspective despite the fact that they were earning huge amounts of money mm. um, you know they were doing this not out of necessity but because they saw something else yes you know we saw the scale of you know major capital projects you know huge some of the biggest that mm. have been committed to in australia and i think that gives you an understanding of what the like a really tangible understanding of what the scale of our demand on a macro scale looks yes like. and because
0: everybody wants lights on. Yes. Everybody wants to drive their car. Everybody wants to
1: iron their shirt, mm. charge their iPhone. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. And um, for the lay person, yeah. there's not much more thought that goes into, you know, what are the, you know, what are the, the implications of me switching on a light, Or, yeah. you know, what does it take to get, you know, uh, electricity on demand <clears throat> to me wherever I am? Hmm. Um, what does it take for me to drive a car down to Margaret river and back? Yeah. You know, those sorts of things. And I, I just, I kind of feel, and you know, there's a lot of, you know, confirmations of, 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 this feeling that, you know, I guess this idea of cognitive dissonance, dissonance, should I say, hmm. is, uh, is really interesting and one that I've, and behavioral economics and, you know, yeah. those sorts Exploring of Explain cognitive
0: dissonance for somebody who doesn't quite understand uh, it.
1: I guess to use a, a really great analogy, I would potentially say smoking. Yeah. Everyone now understands that smoking is very harmful for our for, uh, for our healths. Yes. Yeah. Um, gun ownership. Uh, gun ownership in the face of mass uh, sorry mass shootings. Yes. Um, people understand that the fact that we have guns in our possession. Um, can lead to these types of outcomes Yeah. yet when it comes to personal ownership of a gun um, you know believe that the situation's completely different hmm. that um, you know and they will look more favourably on alternative evidence than that evidence that's staring them in the face Yes. and potentially you know dragging them along to a certain understanding and you know one thing i noticed is that this idea of of personal liability to all the ills that we see around us you know companies wouldn't exist governments wouldn't exist if we didn't have needs that needed to be managed on a mm. you know a more organized scale yes so also you know companies themselves when you when you really break it down um, particularly publicly listed corporations, yeah. uh, the ones that are typically, you know, the subject of, you know, uh, picketing and, you know, uh, protests. They are guided by two things: demand, mm-hmm. which we create individually, yes, and that's aggregated, and then shareholder will, right? So the shareholder will side of things is largely driven by profit. Hmm. Okay, so. Here we are, you know, and we're seeing a system develop here, right? Yeah. So we have the individuals looking at the corporations to provide answers, to do better. But when the lens is turned back on ourselves, Mm -hmm. there's nothing really wrong with the way we're going about life. Yeah. Um, The... We see things that we do as needs when really Mm. they're wants. Um, Yeah. Driving a car eating, you know, more than we need, um, you know, living on far more space than we really actually, um, should inhabit. You know, these are all problems that, you know, we see in different degrees around the world from those that have the discretion to, um, to really live that way. Hmm. Though trying to get behavioral change, uh, to mirror the i guess the spoken and the the ethical guidance yeah. that leads people to to say something you know about something that's external to their sphere of influence uh well, no, not even sphere of influence to to their sphere of control yes is two completely different things yeah and so i really love the fact that you know what i've studied has led me to a lot of quantitative analysis, over qualitative. Yeah. And I really hate qualitative thought, qualitative justifications. I want data. I want to be able to quantify the relative, you know, the relative um, advantages or disadvantages of any decision that we make, yeah. the opportunity cost. And I figured that we just need more transparency. Yeah. We just need more transparency in our lives. So we don't need to be telling people what to do. We need to be providing them the information to say, if this, then that. Yes. You know, if option B, then the outcome is different as well. Yeah. And so I figured drilling engineer working for one of the largest corporations in the world is not going to be able to have a conversation with an individual from any place of merit. Uh, to do anything, you have to lead by example, I feel, mm-hmm. um, to, to maintain any credibility. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, you know, where we went. And so, I guess we were talking about aha moments. Yeah. And probably, uh, hopefully, I, I haven't really waffled too much, but the, it was probably a series of things that have kind of led me to where I am. You know, I think completely differently now than I did 15 years ago, than I did 10 years ago. Yes. And then I did five years ago. You know it's been a really steady evolution or mm. I'd say an evolution. I'm I guess a little bit biased there, but yeah, those are really ideas that and, and, and events that have really guided, guided me in terms of where I am now. And um, I just want to dial back to something you were mentioning
0: earlier on about the, the system, particularly here in Western Australia mm-hmm. yeah. You're right in the fact that everything, we have an abundance of stuff. Everything's comfortable. Yet there are inefficiencies. Um, the challenge I'm finding with, you know, like the part-time work that I do outside of podcasting, and some of the coaching I do, you know, on a small level and big level, is that while things are comfortable, and for listeners, I'm doing the bunny ears around mm-hmm. it. Um, while things are comfortable people really struggle to move and more and more and more it's become obvious that people the majority of people I'd probably go let's do the 80-20 80% of the people will move only when there's pain Hmm. so they'll move out of pain whereas 20% 20 of the people will go I want something better and I'll act upon that and, you know, I saw this in, I almost capitalised on this in, in back in England when, you know, where the global economic crisis, Tony Blair cut a lot of the funding to local governments and then all of a sudden the second biggest expense was real estate. And we provided this service to give a proper overview of people's real estate for a local government and how it was used and how they could make efficiencies that and I made a lot we made a lot of money selling that that one study and repeated it over and over again mm. so you know sometimes it's kind of like i've heard i've heard a, a good friend of mine say never waste a crisis but it's kind of how do we move people when there isn't a crisis mm. to avert a crisis before we move yeah it's a challenge isn't it because otherwise we'll we'll only ever move at a sort of natural evolutionary state if we wait for a crisis oh now it's time to move wait for the next crisis no no move you know it's always like the bludgeoning elephant that only moves when he's hungry absolutely um how how do we get to a place where we you know nimbly move towards what's better in the 20 percent?
1: yeah and um it's a it's a really interesting point um in crisis is typically when things change and usually for the better Mm. as well. You know, you've seen it multiple times throughout history. Um, And also, you know, here I was, you know, really asking more of individuals. Um, You know, we have organized ourselves and we've created a set of rules by which society works, the economy works, businesses work and Mm. so on. And those sets of rules Definitely orient us to act in one way or mm. a certain way. I really believe in the power of the power of this organisation, so particularly economies and so on, to influence better practices. Mm. Uh, you know, on a micro scale for the individual, but also on a macro scale as well. And this is where you know we could probably touch on you know elements of circularity in economies and this idea of circular economy. Yeah, and. Though, in the meantime, you really can't blame people for working within the confines of the rules, Mm. nor companies, nor corporations. Mm. You know, I think what you need is consistency, metered change, so it's not, you know, when we see a lot of this, right, you know, politically, you know, around the world, we've got a lot of drastic change happening. I'm not an expert on politics, don't get me wrong, Um, but... You know, that isn't helpful. You know, it's really not helpful. And I guess the, you know, metered movements towards where we agree we should be, uh, where I guess that crisis isn't created, but the disincentives are gradually, or the incentives, should I say, Mm -hmm. are gradually phased in, I feel is probably the most effective way to inspire better practice. And it is all economic. Yeah. I believe, you know, and we can talk about business and, you know, behavioral economics and all those yeah. elements. I think we'll get to that in a minute. Won't but um, the, the one way I feel that we can make better decisions, the status quo, is by making the alternative more expensive. And... The alternative more expensive. Yes. Right. So try and disincentivize bad practice economically. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, that makes sense. Um,
0: yeah, I came up with an example of that, which is probably best not talk about. <laughs> <laughs> you can know that? Indeed. So you find, you find yourself or you are there by design, as a drilling engineer in Chevron you've been
1: there for how many years uh, I guess at the time of departure about eight years So mm. so it's in a fair bit in so that time.
0: you're about you know you about to go out and start your own business we'll talk about
1: that in a sec. when did the idea start to percolate I mentioned reading that book by or boomtown 2050 mm-hmm. that was 2009 Probably 2010 when I purchased the book because I'd started work in 2009. Yeah. I'd say a lot of the thoughts were growing. Um, I felt very ambivalent and very, very present with, I guess, opportunities to work in ways that would honor better outcomes from that perspective or uh, from an ecological, sorry, from an ecological perspective. Mm. Where I was, I didn't feel the need to move. Um, certainly, the the business side of things came from. Uh, I didn't realise this, but I'm actually quite a hard worker, mm. and I like finding solutions to things. Mm. And I was in a position where I had a very cushy rotational job that gave me as much time off as time. On the tools, and I guess with that extra time, I just saw that as opportunity to do something. You know, other people could watch TV, they could go on surf holidays, they could you know do anything with their time. Mm. And really, we just you know we're throwing some ideas around, and this is you know one idea that you know I was quite passionate about. One to see, you know, um, I guess new normal bar and kitchen was the was what the culmination of, of this uh, ideation was. But one, uh, being first-generation Australian, having the chance to travel a lot around uh, the world, I saw the way culturally people did things. Mm. I remember when I turned 18, or even just slightly before I turned 18, what the nighttime culture looked like in Western Australia, or in Perth specifically, Uh, what that looked like, and how disparate that image was in relation to many other established cultures. Yes. Uh, You know, it really... There was a lot of anonymity. Um, We really didn't have, I feel, a good enough respect for drugs and alcohol individually uh, within our culture. And... What it meant was a, you know, it was it wasn't a very safe, exciting nightlife yep. here in Western Australia. So that was one thing. That was very small, actually. The other that really evolved, and this this probably happened a couple of years after reaching reading this book by Richard Weller. I started you know thinking about waste. Um, also, probably around 2012, 13, um, I guess then. The understanding or the quantification of biodiversity in our home of you know the southwest became very apparent, and you know it was re- just really just reading about it. Mm. Uh, I was amazed to hear that the southwest eco region of Australia, and for those of you at home, it's it's a region that is bordered by Shark Bay to the north. And southeast, as far as Israelite Bay, and and put simply, if you were to draw a line between the two um, points uh, on on the coast there and everything southwest captured uh, in that region, is one of the top five biodiversity hotspots in the world. Um, And so a biodiversity hotspot is... It's a region known for it's biodiversity in general, so the, the quantities of unique species that, that exist, uh, but also for the, um, I guess, the level of endemicism as well, so the number of endemic uh, species that are found here. Here in the Southwest, we particularly have a lot of uh, endemic flora, uh, yeah. which which contribute to that that biodiversity of endemics, and, but also for the rate of loss, of those species and you know it's a really interesting thing you know like one you you almost feel like you know we should be awarded a medal for um for that realization but then you know we have rates of biodiversity loss that exceed, you know most of the world yeah uh, which is really worrying hmm. you know recently um for, for only five and a half uh, Two and a half million people. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so we've, we've become very effective at dominating the environment. That mm. is one thing that this last hundred years has taught us, mm. is that we can very effectively eliminate anything else, and probably soon ourselves if we decide to. Uh, in many, uh, you know, we choose your own adventure, really. We could, you know, we could do it in many different ways, whether it's political instability, whether it's, you know, kill, killing all the insects, as, mm-hmm. uh, as has become recently quite well well documented, though. The I guess that was a real wake-up call for me, and and really instilled in me that urgency to do what, something.
0: What was it that touched you in there? Then, what,
1: you know, because anybody could have read that and gone,
0: "Oh, that's nice."
1: Ah, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't think I can't really put myself effectively into the shoes of anyone else. Mm. But certainly I just felt very strongly about that. You know, I'm very... So for somebody who said earlier on that they're quite unemotional. Well, so I was just about to say this as well. Like I'm very unempathetic when it comes to issues like poverty, uh, you know, cross-border disharmony, you know, all these things that, you know, Mm. unused... Uh, stations or just media will choose to focus on, yes. Um, but more focused on the the structural issues that are you know leading to these problems. Yes. You know these are just symptoms yeah, of a problem. Hundred percent. And we can moan about symptoms all day long. Yeah, that's right. And uh, w- the more we talk about si sim- sorry, the more we talk about symptoms, the less we talk about the problem. Hmm. Um, the symptomatic approach really allows us to very effectively externalize a lot of the blame that I was talking about. Mm. And, you know, it, it leads to further disharmony and it's Correct. just Real not helpful. and Yeah, exactly. And, you yeah. know, this this factionalization of of uh, groups of people is just not good, I, I feel. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this has all been allowed to perpetuate. So, you know, that's, I can't remember how we got onto this, this topic, but uh, that is I certainly.
0: how somebody who said that they were unemotional, are uh, quite emotional about
1: Yeah, the I, I don't even know if it's emotional. I'm just, I, I just see it as a problem. You know, I, yeah. I see it but as a problem to. A fire in that. Yeah, continued existence. Yeah, I could have potentially, you know, read read that stat and, and taken a very apathetic standpoint and just said, oh, someone else will solve it. I kind of felt it was within me to do something to actually offer, you know, meaningful um, mm. like a meaningful solution. And yeah, maybe that's where it was. It was like I felt I could do something mm. there. So how did that translate into the idea and the principles that became New Normal? Okay, so New Normal was a real proof of concept. Uh, I had no rights to be looking, and I I am talking in the the past tense, but um, I had no rights to be moving into the hospitality sector. As well, I know, a, right. Well, as an engineer yeah. um, who, you know, really has an, a, you know an interest in food, but my interest wasn't putting food onto a plate. My interest was the processes surrounding the food actually getting to the plate. Right. And then, you know, in true engineering fashion, um, looking at how do we do that more efficiently? Mm. You know, so where is the waste firstly? Um, well, actually, we'll talk about how we got to, I guess, focusing on food. Yeah. I wanted, and I think with any business, you need to focus on a basic human need. Because at some point then, if you're not focusing on a basic human need, whatever you're providing will become redundant. redundant. Mm. Or a basic need of anything, right? yes. provided we value it enough. And, and so, the, th- And the earlier down the yeah. value chain of life... Food, heat, energy. Yeah, water, yeah. you know, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, I felt like we were really... And I say I, but I, probably there was many of us involved in this process. I was probably the main driver from a thematic perspective um, mm-hmm. as to who, what we became. Um, I certainly needed, you know, a lot of hand-holding when it came to running and opening a business, Mm. all those sorts of elements as well. So I guess credit needs to be uh, shown there. Though food was the one that we settled on and Mm. we felt, you know, this is one, it's a a wonderful opportunity. Mm. We actually have, we're a net exporter of of food um, and we have this biodiversity that we've just been talking about. We've also got this amazing Mediterranean climate as well, which means that theoretically I thought we should be able to provide for ourselves throughout the year. Plus, you know, we sit between the, I guess, the latitude lines of 30 and 50 degrees, and that's the perfect latitude line, or like that, that's the perfect region for wine growing. Mm. Not everyone has that. Yeah. So, w- as far as I saw, I, I figured we could have a full service restaurant with everything coming from the region, and mind you, we're not the first necessarily to think like this. Um, yes. Credit has to go to probably Sophie Zelica down in Pemberton, and um, mm. she was really she's been doing this for a long time. Um, our focus, however, was very much on the waste associated. So, really, when you look at the hierarchy of 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 waste and consumption profiles um, from a from a I guess a an individual's perspective. um the biggest impact we can have on the ecology around us is in order of priority choosing to have more children um you know that is easily the the largest driver of ecological impact that we're aware of Mm. closely followed by consumption of meat yeah um and then you know further down the line is um, I guess seasonality and, and locality of produce. Yeah. So although and we talk about produce. it a lot, it's it's a very, and I, I use this term again, it's a very qualitative desire. Like we do it because it it sounds great, it looks great, but it's not necessarily the biggest thing we can do to improve the quality of our diets. Certainly think, picking things when they're ripe, that is, uh, I guess that is, yeah. and, and I'm, I know I'm talking in a steam company when it comes to that. Uh, yeah. I guess that that analysis, though you know, having come from the old worlds um, in in England, and then mm. also doing what you do now in in working with a lot of growers, yeah, um, you see the way our centralized distribution systems around fresh food actually operate. And unfortunately, we can't pick things at peak ripeness. No, it's when you know the nutrition is at its peak, mm-hmm. taste is yep. at its peak. Though you know when you've got a you know a minimum of a three week uh, supply chain residence, Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately that's just not possible, and so we end up with these very lackluster tomatoes.
0: Peaks and you've got chemicals that you can put on them to ripen them quickly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That creates Um, perfect storm. Which yeah,
1: yeah. So the the locality side of things was one for us. Um, The big one for me was inorganic packaging. And so I've, I need to take a step back from the, org, uh, I guess the agricultural context here. Yeah. From a chemical perspective, inorganic packaging is anything that's not organic. And organic is something that has a carbon and hydrogen backbone molecule. Yeah. And so that's plastics. Uh, a lot of things that really don't have any intrinsic value to what we're serving as a restaurant. Yes, um, and are almost a foregone conclusion for anything that casts across the state boundary. Yes. So that was a real driver for us. Like, how do we get rid of all this plastic, which, you know, yeah. you know it's, a, it's an 80-year problem. You know, we, we haven't had, well, actually, it's probably 100 years now. Yeah. We haven't had plastics in our lives, particularly in the mass market for very long. Um, but, you know, they will be with us for much, much longer, yeah. uh, even if we stop using plastics. Yeah. yeah and so that was a really interesting challenge for me as well. Um, but then the next one was really how do we how do we influence people to consume less meat and for me it wasn't telling people to consume less meat you know no one really listens to anyone that jumps up on their soapbox quite, re- quite readily. Mm. Um, the challenge for us was how do we make vegetables taste as delicious as possible and so on top of the fact that we you know we needed to make room for vegetables and plant-based product on our menus at all times. Yeah, We did whatever we can to make them as delicious as possible. And I, I, one thing that I'm really glad to admit in the post-mortem what uh, new normal had become was some of the vegetable dishes that I'd had in that restaurant or the plant-based dishes that I'd had in that restaurant were the most delicious things I've ever tasted. Yeah. and that was really great. And then the next thing, um, you know, to, to reinforce the, the structural change of decision-making at an individual scale was let's be transparent. Let's not use words like green, sustainable, local, seasonal, uh, you know, all these words which, you know, I'd come to really despise because they really act as a very effective mask for inefficiency. Yeah. And let's just tell people how local, uh, how much locally sourced produce we were serving, how much waste we were creating in the kitchen. Let's measure every single waste stream. And this is something that you know structurally we don't have the ability to do on yeah. a residential or small scale, uh, <clears throat> a small, uh, small business, or small to medium sized enterprise scale in Western Australia. It's coming, mm-hmm. but I really think that's going to be key to actually influencing better practice. Mm. Firstly, when you measure, you can charge yep. for inefficiency. Yep. Um, secondly, you, it, you can manage it, and then you yes. can charge for it. Yeah, yeah. and you know, um, one of probably the guiding principles that we used in going into New Normal was a, a quote by Shigeo Shingo, who is one of the founders of the Toyota process, or like you know, Lean Six Sigma, and. One of his really influential quotes is the most dangerous types of waste are those that we don't manage or we don't measure, should I say. And so I was like, let's just measure everything. Yeah, You know, that's all we need to do is just measure everything and figure out a way to bring that to our customers in as close to a real-time feedback loop as possible. Hmm. And so that took a little bit of time. So we spent, you know... Here as an engineer, I was like, all right, if we're not using these terms, how do we articulate to the likes of mass media what we're doing? Mm. Where, you know, really that's, that's hard to communicate without numbers to back you up. But when you're a new mm. restaurant, you don't have the numbers. No. So I was like, well, let's just focus on being a good restaurant and creating other reasons for people to come to us. And then hopefully, you know, the staying power will come with the fact that people know yeah. that if they come to dine with us at the new normal bar and kitchen whatever capacity, they will be making the most ecologically sensitive choice that they could be making. And mm. one that was even more ecologically sensitive than them choosing to dine at home. Obviously, yes. that is a decision that not everyone in, um, I guess, society has the, I guess, the, the luxury of making. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly an area that we were concerned about. You know, we wanted ubiquity across all, you know, um, I guess social demographics within the community. We didn't want to just target the top 2% and say, you know, those that can afford to come out for two to three meals every fortnight, Mm. um, would be those that would benefit from this type of thing. But it was certainly, and given the role that restaurants play in, in our society Mm -hmm. was an area that I felt we could build a platform. You know it's a proving ground we prove that we can do this and i can talk to some of the things that we've been able to measure in the time that we had been open um if we're able to do this and show others that it's possible you know that's the influence piece that's where yeah you know we have earned our credibility then you can open it up and then you can look at how do we, I guess, improving the way we distribute food, although we had a lot of influence with a lot of the small, actually small and large uh, distributors that we worked with and and primary Mm. producers, Um, you're only one entity, you know, in a very Mm. big commercial system. So you're not going to grab anyone by the neck and say, this is how you must do it. Yeah. They have to want to work with you. Yeah. And, you know, you don't represent as a small bar or restaurant, really any demand that's meaningful. Yeah. For, you know, for, for any meaningful distributor or you know large scale producer. So you know, how do you actually go and, and, and really work to create this influence? And that's where you lean on this, um, I guess, ideals of this idea of image and you know marketability and, and so on yes. as well, which is all very new to me. But I was fascinated, and mm. and so yeah, that's kind of where we are. So how do you go from idea to action? It's a lot of hard work. Uh, I'd say it was an idea that was born probably four years. Was it no. just you or was it a group of people? Um, there was a group of us. There was a group of us. And I'll keep them um, anonymous for the time being just yeah. um, just because of their preference. But um, one, one of which was my brother. Um, yeah. So my brother and I growing up, um, two very different personalities, but got along amazingly well. Mm. Um, my brother brought a little bit of street to our relationship you know he was a little bit of a hustler like you know <laughs> real hustler uh really was fascinated by business i was less so uh, yeah. you know from a very young age i can remember him in primary school selling things it was a, a concept that was completely foreign to me yeah by high school he was selling things internationally yeah and was just very into this sort of thing and yeah. so the two of us you know me with this idea that we just talked yeah. about And him with, you know, a lot of the, I guess, the commercial and and legal now, which is now really developed to understand. Uh, Yeah, we became a pretty, pretty great duo. Uh, But, you know, every bit of free time that I had, um, you know, I felt like I was doing something good. And... You know, I wasn't doing it to to escape an industry or anything like that, which I think is often the, the yeah. misconception. You know, you go into business because you hate what you do, or just felt passionate about something. And you know, even on. if it even if it fell over before we opened our doors, that would have been okay. You know, yeah. obviously you invest some money with a you know brick and mortar type business like this. You invest some money into yeah, you know the uh, the initiation of an idea and you know that commitment grows with time so it does get a little bit harder to um to really step away at at a point um but you know i really just wanted to build it and then in state by trickle feeding equity um sorry by trickle feeding equity to those that really deserve to be owning and operating a restaurant. You know, as a as a chef, you know, things that I, I kind of understood before opening a kitchen. Um, working in hospitality, it's hard work. There's a lot of unpaid labor, um, mm-hmm. which is something that we actively tried to stamp out, um, you know, from the beginning. And this is probably an outsider's view. I wasn't brought up in a kitchen where I was, you know, required to work 90 hours and log 38 on my timesheet. Yeah. Um, you know, that's another interesting thing is, you know, we really don't understand the costs of this food. You know, if we were Mm. to actually pay the true cost of, you know, Mm. some of the best food in the world by, you know, the standards that we deem them, my goodness, you know, like Mm. the, the quantity of people that could actually afford to, um, to enjoy them would be, you know, minuscule, you know, much smaller than they are now. Yes. And you know, it's just it's Pandora's box, really. You know, my mm. insight into um, to the the hospitality industry. But getting back to you know those that have worked there, that have the expertise in you know managing a kitchen, managing a restaurant, those sorts of things, was um, it's pretty hard to to mm. to actually go and um, from that position actually run. And, or even open a successful business. I saw this as a really viable option for for those that would be working for us. And yeah, it, it did take us a little while to find, um, you know, suitable staff members that really, you know, had the interest. But you know, they worked more like founders than employees. Yes. You know, it's very hard to to really um, to to find those that think that way. And you know, sometimes it's just you know pride in position, pride in, you know, in, in, in their own brand that has them act that way. Um, sometimes it's, they actually understand what you what, you know, where you're coming from. Um, you know, that's a very special person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the challenge for me was to make sure they were all brought in to, to understanding this, but yeah. Yeah. So I guess I didn't want to, you know, become a restaurateur. No, you no, know, that wasn't me. You know, I was very uninterested in what goes onto a plate. I was really looking at what comes next. You know, after we figure out the process, after we optimize mm. the process around a kitchen, how do we optimize the process somewhere else? Yes. And I am completely industry, technology, interest agnostic when it mm. comes to that sort of thing. Mm. If someone gives me an opportunity and says, hey, you know, we've got a process and it's just not meeting our requirements,
0: Let's that'd be, it. that'd be me.
1: I'd be in yeah. there in no time. I think, yeah. So that was, that was it. And, and I guess the way it all shook out was, um, we did have a a, a business partner who was actually planning to run the business, but we, we learned sometime before we were to open that, um, I guess we just didn't, we weren't on the same wavelength hmm. and we decided to kind of part ways, which meant, you know, it left, um i guess this business in the hand of two very green hospitality (laughs) professionals yeah and of the two of us i was probably closer to the idea and a lot of the planning and structurally the the, i guess architecturally the the design of the the venue so and i just i had money you know i've I've lived for a very long time within my means and um just having that um, I guess discretion to just take some time off and say hey I'm I'll, do yeah I'll focus on this and you know we'll see what happens you know and, and obviously it's, it's probably been a lot longer now um, you know focusing on this business than I intended you know I was thinking oh, I'd be six months and I'd be able to turn back around and jump back into the world of engineering but unfortunately you know it's you know when you have a business you really you, you do need to make sure that business is your number one priority and, yeah. and when did it open we opened in June 2017 and uh, funny story actually Um, we were a couple of months delayed and for that entire year-long period in up, we had one holiday booked and that was for my now fiance's sister's wedding and it was in France her her parents had moved over to to France and um, we got to the point where we just needed to open we were delayed but mid-June was the day everyone who was in you know we had staff they were on the payroll and yeah. we were just like this is the day yeah that was a day after I was to fly out to France so <laughs> here comes my brother Justin strapped in uh, ran the venue for two weeks I felt like an absolute criminal for leaving <laughs> it yeah. was one of those non negotiables in yeah. my mind it was, it was um, I think these types of events are very important Yeah. And so, yeah, we had a, a wonderful two weeks. Me working double time, you know, wedding attendee during the day and then during the early morning to, you know, mid-morning, uh, trying to coordinate things from the other side of the world. Which, <laughs> it's amazing how efficiently you can do that these days. But Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting how that all happened. And, um, yeah, ultimately, um, I was very happy where I was uh, and doing what I was doing. Yeah. Um, obviously, you have stressful times and, you know, but, you know, I had opportunities that you know I wasn't seeing my peers receiving Um, and this is you know outside of the organization I felt like they were very good and you know we walked for the same place I probably don't need to mention where that was but um, yeah I I felt valued and and you know there was a lot of there was a lot of opportunity and Mm. I was working with very intelligent people which for me was a was a real plus yeah so um, yeah that was good and then Ultimately, I, you know, offered to, you know, commit to some part-time work. At the moment, at the time, I was working on a project that had just, that was a Lean Sigma project that had just, you know, Mm, entered into the the control uh, phase and and, uh, probably took about two days a week, I would would have thought, to to really see it through. I proposed that, you know, unfortunately, you know, as some of these organizations can be, um, we're just a little bit uh, inflexible around the... I guess the deviation from a a full-time equivalent loading. Yeah. And, um, yeah, just ultimately had to say, I'm going to have to focus on this.
0: Yeah. So how, because obviously listeners
1: will gather that it had to close, um, Mm. how long did it run for? So we closed officially on the 18th of April, 2019, so that, that had us open for about just two months short of two years. Yeah. So, and that would probably sit us in the, I guess, the, just outside the 20% success rate for small business, um, beyond two years. And um, yeah, like I I really, um, I guess I have to say that, you know, there was a lot of, we did made the decision to close because of the fact that we felt like there was not much more that we could do. Mm. Given our skill set, given, I guess, the way we were being interpreted, um, obviously, you know, whenever you open a business or do anything, there's a lot of externalities, um, externalities that you want to be aware of. Um, you make an, you know, an educated guess, an assumption as to how those, you know, externa- external factors will play out. But yeah. ultimately, I think we were probably a little bit bullish about the region in which we opened in. Um, what were some of the highlights of that? Oh, need so to- many highlights. Um, I, need to, I need to start with my staff. I really do. Uh, I'd managed to amass some of the most passionate young people in that area of interest that I have really ever come across. Yeah, Some people that went over and over and over and above the the expectation to really make mm. this idea a reality. And, yeah, it's one of those things that I just... I. I I know you know this is a real proud dad moment you know I haven't got yeah. kids my own but I just think you know we're in good hands you know future generations really get things to a degree that you know I didn't fully understand yeah. um, when I was their age mm. um, there was a lot of great collaboration. We we won some incredible accolades as well. Far mm. more. They were, they were certainly necessary. Yeah. Um, given what I know about the way the business was going, you know, every time you you know we won best new restaurant in the WA Good Food Guide in, in twenty seventeen, which is you know it's, we're in Perth, but it's a hugely competitive market. Mm. You know, and there's different you know levels of investment and. Uh, We had no pedigree, you know, outside of those that were in the kitchen who were very skilled. Mm. um, And, you know, obviously the the, the staff that we had running the venue, um, we as owners had no pedigree. No one knew us in the world of food and beverage in Western Australia, let alone anywhere else. Yeah. And, you know, that was awarded three months or four months after we, no, three months after we opened. Wow. Um, you know, we were very fortunate. Yeah. Like, you know, these are, these are the things that keep you in the game. Really. Like, um, unfortunately there's only one, you know, Hmm. you you know, those types of awards, there's, there's only one. So, you know, you've, you've really got to, if if you're not winning them, you've got to figure out, you know, other sources of, I guess, um, of motivation. But, um, we actually managed to do what we set out to do. Did you get to the point of measuring the waste? Yeah, absolutely. So, but the the and obviously in different different levels of success. Um, We can talk about that more if you're interested or the listeners are interested. (laughs) But um, we did a lot. Um, I think the the challenge of betting on a race that you're not running in uh, definitely um, is a really valid. or or actually not betting on a race that you're not running in is a really valid piece of business advice as well. Um, You know, certainly you're in far greater control of those things that are actually within your control when you're relying on others who, Mm. you know, they'll sell you the world, they'll, you know, they'll tell you that, you know, a product release is coming or integration with an API is around the corner, but, you know, it may never happen. And so, you know, you can't really rely on those things. Um, treat what you know as knowns and anything else that may potentially come as you know as is as, out there to turn up yeah that's yeah. right as there's being something that may arrive uh but certainly yeah we um in terms of statistics 100 percent of the organic uh waste that we produce returned to the nutrients or cycle of soils which is amazing, you know, at the moment, Mm. you know, 60% of thereabouts of our general waste is actually food waste. And, you know, it's not necessarily food that could have otherwise been used. Um, although a lot of it is, um, just because of our own, you know, I guess, um, home economics, um, management of a kitchen and a fridge. Um, but you know, it's still valuable nutrients that can go to really regenerating soils. Mm. And um, I feel like we're already harsh enough on our soils as, as it is. Yes. Uh, but to, to have a very one directional flow of nutrients out of the, the soils, um, you know, at least in a natural um, process, is just, you know, it's a little bit too much of an ask. Mm. And that was great. Um, probably about 97% of the produce that we served came from the southwest eco-region of WA. So um, obviously we weren't perfect. Um, There was the odd occasion when we had chickpeas on a menu and I'd ask our head chef, where did chickpeas come from? Oh, it says they came from the Ord River. So, you know, technically it's outside of the southwest eco-region, but it's still WA. Yep. Um, We don't do liqueurs very well here Mm -hmm. in uh, the southwest or we don't have a, a huge... Supply, But fortunately, over in South Australia, they're, um, they're very clued in to, uh, to that area. So a few of our liqueurs came from the Adelaide Hills. And herbs and spices. Um, very low density, um, but um, very impactful um, contributions mm. to any dish. Um, also, the distribution of, of such is, is um, very unintensive in terms of the fact that you don't need to preserve the freshness. Yeah. They're dried, you know, so they'd be be the regions where we'd we'd outsourced. Uh, And then we produced almost no inorganic waste from our kitchen. Right. So, um, and this was one thing that I wasn't 100% sure of. And so I I did talk about how I jetted off and let, basically drop the hand grenade of opening to you know a team that you know was involved but you know shouldn't have been as involved as I made them yeah I remember before I left it was just a mad dash of just like all right what could we possibly need I went to buy a roll of a commercial roll of aluminium foil yeah and a commercial roll of cling film and we didn't think we needed cling film by the way we designed our kitchen but I was like I know there's going to be something that I've forgotten yeah so when we closed we i think we large. used the aluminium foil but we yeah. didn't buy any more. we had used or consumed 40 percent of that role of commercial cling film right in almost two years so most commercial kitchens would go through for a scale um, or a range would go through of our size so larger kitchens would go through much more yeah. anywhere between one and three rolls of commercial cling film per week. Right. And you went through 40% of one of those in just under two years. Yeah. And so, like, I, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> um, on top of that, you know, it was a real community builder of a, a restaurant. You know, we really got to know a lot of the local community. Um, there were a lot of people that traveled, you know, longer distances to come and mm-hmm come and dine with us as, you know, our profile grew. Um, But certainly, um, by and large, we were a community restaurant. Mm. Uh, People were telling us that some of our plant-based dishes were some of the best plant-based dishes, some of the best dishes that they'd ever had. Yes. Which was wonderful. Um, In closing, our staff have gone on to really spread this message as well and you know mm. we're probably you know at the time of recording now we're maybe 4 months on from the date that we closed our doors and everyone dispersed mm. but i'm hearing you know weekly fortnightly of the way you know new places of work are changing yes. their practices based on conversations with ex staff members right and that's exactly the sort of impact that we wanted to have obviously we would have loved to have kept those you yeah. know that team together and you know yeah. just create this a team of of little eco warriors but Mm. you know ultimately it was what it was and Mm. and you know we just um i think the reason we closed was um i was gonna say when did you get to the point where you started
0: to think as great as this is it's not
1: oh it was just we weren't making we weren't so making money was not a problem um you know our our cost of goods you know and this is you know we're in an area where actually australia has the highest minimum wage of of any country in the world Mm -hmm. um so what you would be led to believe is that we have a higher cost of production you know particularly with agriculture i think you know the the cost of the cost of agriculture is you know is largely driven by wages to the to the order of somewhere between 50 and 60 percent right so this is probably the most expensive place to produce fruit and vegetables or any agricultural product in the world yes I was fully aware of this, uh, this observation that you know others were making of you know my decision to do this, and I was like, well, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily the case because you know when you're buying produce in season, it's actually super cheap. Yeah. You know, like for example, last week blood oranges were, and for the for the last month actually, blood oranges were 99 cents a kilo. Yeah. Right. And you know they can be eight dollars 99 a kilo. Yeah. Um, and this is at our local grocer. Um, apricots in season, dollar 14 dollars out of season. Yeah. You know, and so this is where I felt that our agility and our ability to focus, or our keenness to focus on, you know, what was produced around us yes. would actually provide that, um, I guess, mm. business advantage. So to put it into perspective um, with the rest of the hospitality sector, I would say, you know, and I'd be keen to be challenged on this as well. But qualitatively, from what I'd heard and what you know we had we had assumed, um, anywhere between twenty eight percent and thirty five percent cost of goods is healthy for um, for a food and beverage establishment. Our cost of goods, once we figured out the waste side of things and everything, pretty much averaged anywhere between 21%, 23 percent. As a percentage of as a percentage of revenue. Yes. Okay. And so we're in an industry where it's well publicized that margins are razor thin. You know, there's no reason yeah. why a business can't make a 20% profit if they're doing all the things well. Yeah. They understand what their demand is. Ultimately, for us, I think we, I said we just felt like we couldn't do it much better. Um, we, you know, as with most small businesses, everything you have goes into the business to mm. open the doors. And then you're hoping that, you know, there'll be a little bit more to reinvest in the business and, yeah. you know, one day take out of the business you know, yes. if it works. Otherwise, there's just no reason to be in business, right? Mm. Um, we found that, you know, as with many places in Western Australia or in Perth in um, around the world, you know, you have your purple patch, you know, you open your doors, you get discovered, and then you're yeah. very popular, you know, for a period of time. Yeah. Um, we found, and I made probably some assumptions around continued custom that were definitely unfounded, you know, Mm. I kind of thought, you know, we'd really started to, to really make it as a, as a store in, in the region and something that would have, you know, this baseline custom that would just allow us to, you know, just be sure that the lights would stay on and so on. Mm. And, you know, it doesn't mean you can, can stop, you know, marketing and hmm. social media campaigns and all those sorts of things because you need that engagement. Though, ultimately, um, you know, that really dropped off. You know, we had a, a first year break even of a certain amount um, of revenue. And when we closed, I remember the week we had made the decision to close, um, you know, we were averaging half of that revenue um although uh, like in our second year our uh, costs had come down significantly um but you know even that put us on the cusp of viability mm. and this was immediately post i guess hospitality's money making season which is you know the period leading yeah, up to yeah. the end of the year we lost everything that we made in one month at the start of the year mm. um you know in that sorry lost everything that we made in that first um Year in the oh, sorry, the, the yeah. last few months of the year in the first month of the next year and we had winter coming uh, we sat between two fairly major infrastructure projects, one that had stalled out for about 18 months yeah, and another one which was just underway and we really just we saw potential, the potential that we had seen in, in the region um, we still saw but we weren't sure whether we'd be able to withstand mm. the flat period yeah. and you know I'm, I'm you know certainly not going to hang myself in business um, just to hold on to the you know mm. the idea of, of maintenance yeah and viability and um, yeah it just was the right decision and is it a hard one or oh, it's, it's probably one of the hardest decisions I've made absolutely um, you know there's a lot of things you know just from and money's not even high on that list you know time probably, Mm. you know, you put a huge amount of time into things and, you know, I think you probably, you've got a bit of a window into my soul and that, you know, like I've, I spent a lot of time thinking about what's next. You know, we were looking at getting into some very boutique food distribution to try and get, you know, that biodiversity I was Mm -hmm. talking about onto the plates of individuals or home cooks. And, um, you know, a lot of those things just couldn't happen. Mm. Uh, you know we had a you know our head chef was um, being sponsored by the company uh, it means an extra you know three years of of, of toil without much um, I guess autonomy to or discretion to choose you know where they live what they do um, and yeah just breaking up of what really became a very close-knit family mm. as well you know, um, and so those those were hard. Um, certainly, I do talk about cognitive dissonance as well. You know, your balance sheet's telling you one thing, but you kind of very easily led to believe something else as well. Mm. And you know, you have to really get across that. But you know, all of this, you know, I know I look back on already, and it has been a wonderful learning exercise. What some of the biggest things you learn? Uh, from a business point of view certainly even though you know it's going to be hard it's really really hard Uh, and you can never put enough time into it Um, and that was certainly surprising for me in Mm. that I always thought just if you put enough of your energy into a problem and you felt like you were making you know making headway yeah that you would eventually solve that problem. Yeah. And, but with business, you know, you can always be doing more. And i had come from, I guess, a field of study where it was very black and white. You know, there was right and wrong answers. And there was, there was such a thing as enough work in certain scenarios. But I was moving into the world of marketing, you know, just behaviors. You know, you can always do more to bring more people through the door. Yes. Um. You know, dealing with something that is, you know, even a sellable product that you know in itself is, except, uh, sorry, assessed very qualitatively. You know, some someone's going to love it. Someone will think it's the worst meal they've ever tried. Yeah. Um. So you can be, and this is why chefs. You know, like really, from what I've understood, you know, it's an art, and it's this. Yeah. It's this real. It's from real like, collision like of art no. and commerce, yeah, um, and this basic human need that we're talking about. We, mm. you know, and it's so competitive. The barrier to entry is quite low to open a restaurant. You just need money. Um, you you don't need any special qualifications necessarily, and you just need to be able to follow the rules. And hopefully, you, you need to have the ability to attract people to come and work with you, mm. and come and visit you as well. Yeah, um, though so it's very competitive but it's in a way a race to the bottom you know one thing that we struggled to do was discount our product you know i was very firm in that you know if we are doing a good enough thing for the community then the community will see value in in what we're selling and they will come and support us by choosing to you know purchase from us instead of someone else that's you know probably not holding themselves to this higher regard in this area um But then, you know, we see other businesses who are competing purely on price Hmm. uh, to bring people through the door. I guess the idea of a $3 pint was something that we dealt with for a while in Perth. Yeah. um, That was just around the corner. Um, You know, it didn't really have a significant impact on us, but certainly, you know, that's an idea that, you know, if you're... continually looking to draw down on your prices and you know alter the value proposition for your uh, target market it automatically devalues what you're doing Mm. and um, people don't have an accurate understanding of what the cost is Mm. Um, and so I really wanted to stay away from that and just focus on being well received being you know creating delicious food those sorts of things and doing whatever I could as a business owner to empower my team to make that happen. Mm. So, yeah. So that was a really interesting learning. Um, Aside from that, you know, I think I kind of expected, you know, certain outcomes, you know, I I knew that it would always be a challenge to stay relevant. Um, You know, businesses of this type historically have a very short, duration um in the market and you know obviously you're you're against the wall there when you decide to to open a business in this area because many have come before you and many have closed yeah you know many will come after yeah and and and, you know there'll be many to follow Mm. so yeah that was um i think that was really about it in terms of learnings what about what did you learn about yourself during that I think I would call myself a pretty hmm, just talking about leadership. I found it very hard to take from my business when there was other areas of need. So this idea of leaders eat last, um, you know, I haven't read the book Mm. and I don't even know who it's by, but I remember seeing the title and Yeah. yeah. And, um, and thinking you know that that does resonate a little bit with me um i i i really for me i took very little out of that business um for the time that we were we were operating and probably you know this is not a you know i guess an exercise in corporate martyrdom necessarily but it's just You know, I wanted to see it succeed and I didn't see my role as being pivotal to the operation of the business. Mm. I'd done that years ago. Yes. Um, Obviously, I was there, you know, when the internet stopped working or, you know, a plumber around the corner had decided to cut a, you know, an NBN connection Um, and, you know, problems needed to be solved. Um, But in terms of day-to-day operations, that wasn't necessary. And that was true from probably, you know, six months in. Yeah. Um, and so, although I was doing a lot of work and a lot of useful work for the business, I wasn't really able to to treat it as something that would pay me mm. uh, a wage. Um, you can lose a lot of friendships in business. Mm. Um, and I am a lot more assertive than I thought I was. Mm. Um, I think, ultimately, you... Um, you know, everyone does have this uh, naivety in business when they start their first one. It's in different areas for different people, but yeah. certainly that advice of don't mix business and friendship is, I think, a, a valid one in a lot of cases. I'm not going to say it's all cases, but yeah. um, certainly, you know, your prior relationship with people and their relationship with you um, can really cloud decision making as mm. well. And so you know that's an area that you know we've obviously you know burnt a couple of bridges with people um they burnt a couple of bridges with us as well you know Mm. and different people in different ways and and um obviously i think about those situations a lot but you know at the end of the day the discussions that needed to happen happened Mm. again i talk about being very unemotional and i think the counter to that in terms of someone that's you know, in conversation with me, can lead to heightened levels of emotion, just because emotions aren't being mirrored, and I yes. understand that. And, you know, in a lot of interaction, that's. So I think um, probably while it's been respected, um, you know, it's been hard to you know hear messages that have come from me. Hmm. And yeah, so that was really a tough one because some great people, you know, and great people hmm. that we have elevated into positions that they weren't ready for that largely that's where it stemmed from you know we thought mm. such and such is a great person they're ready to do this and you know they're great with people they're ready to run our venue you know has worked as a, a waiter or a waitress you know for many years yes. but never actually had to manage people and so on and mm. you know certainly in the first few months that was that was a real source of and and you know pride opening as well that was a real source of of just angst for me mm. and, oh, and many others you know it's not just me as a leader you know it's everyone that has to work in that environment because it really does deteriorate very quickly and although everything's clean on the outside um you know a happy work face. i mean i guess a. Uh, I guess a, a, dysfunctional workplace, um, can't mask itself for too long. No. And, you know, we've all seen it. I think everyone that has seen taken it, a job has it. seen situations like that. Yeah. And yeah, that was, that was a hard one, you know, under my watch as well. You know, yeah. it's it tough. So that'd be the main one.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Mm. What were some of the unexpected benefits that came out of it?
1: I certainly believe I can do a lot more now mm. than I probably could uh, yeah. or, or had done previously. Yeah, um, I've learned there are so many great opportunities that come from just asking your community um, and looking to build community as well. People actually want to see that. Yeah. And so we have received a lot of support, whether in kind or otherwise, um, from the community in, in that sense. You know, um, a lot of businesses in our industry that would have been skewered for some of the things that we had done, you know, were completely forgiven. You yeah. know, we had a situation where an oven of ours went down and all of our food was, was prepared through that oven um, at 4 p.m. on a Saturday. And we were busy yeah like we were this was earlyish days mm. um, before before the awards came and everything but you know we'd uh, been discovered and the album went down four pm perfect timing uh, no one really does a service call on a weekend as well yeah and we also you know knew about this issue as well we'd been trying to sort it out but on the other side it just wasn't really being met with the same level of urgency yeah um, But yeah, we basically had to call every single one of our guests and try and make them alternative bookings for the evening. Yeah. And, you know, that was a a really interesting situation because I can imagine how I'd be if I, you know, had dinner plans, hadn't hadn't, hadn't got anything in the fridge for for dinner, if plans had changed and, you know, had to, to come up with an alternative, especially on one of the busiest nights of the week. Yeah. And people were amazing. People yeah. were absolutely amazing. And if anything it, it probably built you know a stronger relationship yeah. within our community. A brutal um, honesty. Yeah, and also, you know, I guess the, the ethos of the venue as well, gradually over time, you know, people were very understanding. You know, people didn't get paper menus um, in our venue. They weren't able to order pasta, burgers, those sorts of things. Mm. Everyone understood what they were coming in for. Or most people. And yeah. um, you know, I think understood what we were trying to achieve and wanted to be a part of that as well. And I'd say to everyone that was, you know, part of our custom, they, they would, um, certainly, you know, Mm. being contributors to maintaining it for as long as it was maintained.
0: Where would Daryl have been
1: if you didn't pull the trigger and do you Ah, Really hard to say, Um, (laughs) really hard to say. Um, certainly the, uh, I guess the, the candle of improving, Energy, um, the way we consume. Um, certainly, I, I went down this path of trying to, instead of trying to create more supply to match an increasing demand, I was trying to figure out how to decrease demand so that supply didn't have to yeah. increase. Um, obviously, that's counterintuitive to everything we understand about commerce because you know and this is where i feel like the economy is broken because we at some point uh and i'm not gonna say broken but it's you know the outcomes that we're getting from this economy are perfectly um you know can be anticipated perfectly Mm. um you know the way we look to bring virgin resources into our economy at the expense of potentially labor Mm. um it's because of taxation um the the way we invest our money is because we need to see growth and mm. the growth really only comes from an increasing market size. And I might be, you know, having economists really, you know, turning, um, trying to, to really um, add a little bit more context to this. But um, simply, I just think at some point we know that our profile can't keep increasing yes you know regardless of what else is around us we are going to we are going to hit the walls of what is physically possible in terms mm. of a you know a support of human life and it doesn't matter whether we realize it or don't realize it i think it's just going to come and we will have hit that point and then you know all of a sudden life change changes drastically mm. the challenge is how do we build in I guess the incentives to avoid that um, I guess situation where we're touching the ceiling yeah, and then move on and create an economy that really flourishes that, you know, ultimately I see it, our goals economically are to improve the quality of, the quality of human life. Yes. Right. Um, but at the moment quality of life and GDP are intimately coupled. You know that's the way we look at it. Yeah. Uh, we look at market size. You know, and they're all tied to consumption, mm. and largely because, as I've said, you know, it it's, could be consumption of services, but because we make it far more efficient to um, pass materials through an economy without taxation, um, we just mean we just means we consume more materials. Mm. So, I'd still be on that path. I would say, in. Yeah. In trying to figure out ways, and, and that's really hard from within a company that's, you know, there, motivated by their shareholders to increase their market capitalization, um, to improve profitability, and so on. Um, you know, I, I see that, and I fully understand it, and you know, my role in there is to do exactly that, but it's to figure out ways to create that additional value without sacrificing that profitability, the um, I guess the shareholder return and you know obviously there's other ways structurally we could change the economy and that's through policy largely. Uh, I, I don't necessarily know if I'll be you know jumping over anyone to try and, and race into that space. Um, <laughs> I'd really like to be involved in just the, the doing, you know mm. technical feasibilities. Um, Are certainly an interest, and and now um, you know I have the chance to really focus more on that engineering pursuit. I was going to say the world of what's next. Yeah, dispatchable renewable energy uh, sources is is really entering the mainstream. Um, You know, I guess uh, we've kind of crossed the thresholds um, through which dispatchable solar and wind power is actually the cheapest form of dispatchable. Uh, power that, that we have available to us. Yeah. Um, what I had previously been disappointed about with Western Australia and the way we were growing is that we were becoming very efficient at extracting resources. Yeah. We've also created, or not, not created, but we're in this amazing situation where we're, we've just got isolation that is so hard to replicate anywhere else in the world. So, you know, we're almost this amazing little test bed ideas and Mm. things uh, particularly when it comes to energy Um, you know uh, although we produce a lot you know we're one of the world's largest LNG producers we have sun and wind uh, up there with some of the most um, I guess sunniest and windiest population centres around the world I think it's uh, first and third in the order of uh, priority and we also have, you know, for example, grid disconnection. You know, mm-hmm. Western Australia is completely isolated from the yes. national grid, and it means that you know, for a lot of these dispatchable renewable solutions or you know, um, alternative energy carriers, mm-hmm. this is almost the first place that any of these will become commercially viable throughout the world. Yeah. So it makes sense. And we have the resources, whether they be environmental resources or natural resources Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, we're we're extracting to support. And industry that really relies on energy as well. Mm. So, you know, there's an emerging uh, field here in Western Australia focused on alternative fuels. Mm. I think there's great opportunities Um, There's certainly opportunity for us to be passed by with this as well. So, Mm. you know, that's where, right now, I'd like to be involved. Had I been, had I stayed the course, you know, with the work I was doing in um, in engineering, I'd probably be in a very similar position. Mm. And um, this last few years has been an amazing education yeah you know in many in many different areas yeah um, certainly uh, has allowed me to build a level of articulation around understanding of a problem that I want to try and avoid and really bring the picture together uh, in my mind and hopefully I can and really share that with others and it's I think my passion for for work in this area has only really increased yeah you know I think you know people talk about you know being disillusioned and disheartened when, when things don't necessarily work out but it just makes me a little bit more hungry cool you know it's just it's just the way it is yeah for mm-hmm. me and, and um, yeah so that's that's kind of how we did you
0: stay keep yourself grounded it's a slight different question
1: during that time uh yeah the Routine. I think if you spoke routine. to anyone that worked in the hospitality sector, yeah. hospitality itself will keep you pretty grounded. Right. Pretty, pretty damn effectively. Right. Um, there is always something going wrong. There is always just something to refocus here. And I have several examples. Um, I remember a situation where... We were actually, um, so I was, was, I knew when I left, I guess, the engineering fraternity um, that I would probably have a challenge getting back in to become an engineer. And so I I really did want to to formally recognize some of the, the experience that I had. I decided to become a chartered engineer. Um, and that is a fairly lengthy process of career episode reports and so on. Yeah. To, to do that, um, but and this is an example of, you know, a, a real sense of elation, married with you know, uh, you know, a significant, I guess, corrector of that <laughs> of that feeling. And um, so I just I'd been for an interview. I'd been told that yes, you can, be, you know, you can call yourself now a, a chartered engineer, and then also. A friend of mine had sent me a a photo from a magazine. A magazine that I used to read. It's internationally uh, internationally published. Um, mm. It's called Monocle, and it's a really it's a beautiful observation on just everything you know, design, culture, just yeah. the good things in life. And I used to love reading it. And they released a, a f- drinking and dining directory. Um, for the year 2018 and 19 and on one of the lists like the list of the top 50 restaurants in their mind um, Mm. we were there at number 31 I had no idea this was coming and it was it was amazing like it was just such an amazing feeling yeah Um, very easy after these types of situations to kind of feel like you're floating a little bit yeah but then that day or that that week ended up becoming just one of the most difficult weeks of operations that we'd had so we were busy um, for one Mm. but everything broke everything broke and I can remember you know reflecting back on that week and I was like that wasn't worth it you know it really wasn't (laughs) I would just love you know just a week where business happened you know yeah you know, nothing was old necessarily. Apart. Like, you know, we weren't dealing with you know aging assets. We, you know, with yeah, you know, complex maintenance schedules. schedules yeah. It was just things weren't working, <laughs> and yeah, it was just it was very interesting. So I don't think I had a problem getting ahead of myself there. Mm. And I, I don't know if I'm that sort of personality mm. to really, to really get caught up in it. You know, I, I I guess I'd probably need someone else's opinion there. Um, but, mm. you know, I just see my life as being pretty normal. And mm. you just go on and do and hope that you're doing good things and keep going. Yeah. One of the last
0: questions I ask all my guests is, if you could take a little nugget of information and upload it into the collective consciousness so everybody just gets it, what
1: would it be? Just... Understand that we all have far more power to influence than we often give ourselves the credit for. Yeah. We are very, I I, I do hear far more often than I'd like to admit, very passive observations of people's own impact on the world. You know, I'd love to do this, but Mm. such and such a company continues. To do what they're doing, mm. I just I have no empathy for that type of uh, rhetoric. Yeah, and I just think, you know, yes, the challenge for everyone is to, to figure out what the actual cost is of you know any decision and what the you know the yeah. true opportunity cost is. But yeah, just understand that like it can start with you, yeah. and you know you making a decision to do something one way will have a trickle-down effect to people who are, you know, even if, it, if it's that different to what the mainstream is doing, they might ask a question. And they might think about the same thing that you just thought about two weeks ago. Mm. And, yeah, we just need to take the bull by the horns a little bit more. Yes. And just do the just, right thing. Yeah. As far as we see it. So, that's, that's it. Awesome. Daryl, it's been an absolute
0: pleasure Mm. to talk to you. Sorry, just a glass of water. (laughs) Yeah, Um, It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today, Um, to actually sit and listen to somebody who thinks about things so very differently, deeply, systematically, unemotionally, and in a very considered fashion. is Yeah, it's a real privilege.
1: Yeah, likewise, Brendan. It was uh, really nice to, to sit down and chat. So thank you very much. Thank you.